Okay, folks, I think, uh, I think we're ready to get started. There may be some people moving in uh, later. My name is Richard Whitmire. I'm the author of the just published book, uh, The Founders, which is a book about the very early pioneers in the charter movement and, and where they're headed uh, now as well. So on behalf of the, the Texas uh, Tribune, I want to welcome you to the sixth annual uh, festival and to our panel, Best Practices from, from the Best Charters. Uh, this panel is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Uh, those sponsors and donors underwrite the event. Uh, they play no role in determining the event's content, uh, panelists, or line of, of questioning. So our panelists today will start with uh, Yasmin Bhatia. Uh, she's the CEO of Uplift Education, which is the uh, largest college preparatory uh, charter network in Dallas-Fort Worth, educating nearly 16,000 students, uh, Uplift graduates, have a consistent track record of 100% college acceptance, with more than 70% being the first in their families to go to college. Uh, Yasmin joined Uplift in 2009 after having been a consultant at McKinsey & Company for nine years. She brought those skills to Uplift uh, during a critical period of growth. Uh, under her leadership, it has grown from 15 to 36 schools. She's an alumna of the Broad Superintendents Academy and the inaugural class of the Presidential Leadership Scholars through which she recently launched the Principal Impact Collaborative to address the national and collective local challenge of urban principal turnover. And Sarah Kotner uh, is the founder and CEO of Montessori for All. She began her career as an AmeriCorps volunteer uh, who recruited and trained reading tutor tutors for the public school system. After witnessing the achievement gap firsthand, she decided to join Teach for America to help work for a, toward a solution. In her three years in rural Louisiana, she ensured that 100% of students advance at least two years in reading. She moved to Houston to work at the original KIPP school to help economically disadvantaged children get to college. She ensured that 99% of her students pass the state assessment and increase commended scores from 18 to 57%. Looking for an approach to education that would help not only help children get to college, but get them through college, Sarah found her way to Montessori. Uh, she started Montessori for All in 2011. Uh, the flagship campus in Austin serves 400 students and is growing to 600. The second campus in San Antonio opens next year. Uh, Mark DeBella is the chief uh, executive officer of, of Yes Prep. He began his career in education as a 1990 core member with Teach for America teaching fifth grade at Garcia Elementary in HISD. Inspired by Yes Prep founder Chris Barbick's vision, Mark left his position at HISD in 2001 to join Yes Prep, at that time a small charter school in southeast Houston. Four years later, Mark became school director of the first replication site, Yes Prep North Central. Under Mark's leadership, Yes Prep North Central earned the state's highest ranking of exemplary every year received the state national epic award and was named a national blue ribbon school. In 2010, he joined the Yes Prep head of schools team to manage all Yes Prep campuses and later served as vice president and superintendent. Um, today, Yes Prep serves 11,600 students in 16 campuses uh, in Houston's underserved communities. And you may have noticed that we're missing a panel member. While I was having breakfast today, I got an email from Mike Feinberg, uh, co-founder of KIPP, who said that they canceled the last plane out of Houston this morning. <laughs> so he will not make it, uh, but I will pretend to be Mike at certain times, and we all will. Um, I interviewed Mike and, and the rest of the, the KIPP crew extensively for, for my book. Um, so, and the rest of us, can, and other panel members can fill in as well. The event will last 60 minutes and will include 15 to 20 minute period of Q&A. There'll be microphones in the audience. Uh, also, the Walton Family Foundation will be hosting a meet and greet with the panelists immediately followed, following uh, at the FAC lounge just outside. So at this time, please um, silence your phones and for those who want to tweet, the hashtag is pound TTF. Now, the theme of the of this panel is best practices. But I'm going to turn this around a little bit and ask each of the panel members to go through the biggest challenges that they see coming up in the future years. And then we'll circle around and, and discuss best practices to apply uh, to those challenges. So Yasmin, do you want to lead off? Sure, great. Good morning. Uh, it's so nice to be here with all of you. 
I would like to speak to two challenges that we really see at Uplift and broadly across the movement, particularly in Texas. And the first is, how do we make sure that our alumni are graduating from college as the same rate as their middle income and affluent peers? We serve uh, largely um, a student population that is low income and first generation college going students. And while we are graduating kids higher than the overall average Dallas County rate, we are still 20 to 30 percentage points off uh, our children's peers who come from the top quartile of household incomes in the country. And so that is gonna require us to make sure they're not only academically ready, but they're social emotionally prepared for school. So that's pushing us to think even deeper about how we serve students. Uh, and also it's gonna require more partnership with higher ed, because if we think about Texas, there's actually only seven public or private universities in the entire state that have college completion rates for African-American and Hispanic students at the same rate as middle-income and affluent students broadly. So that's the, the first big challenge. And the second challenge that somewhat tied to it is from a resource standpoint. The state of Texas still funds charter schools approximately $1,000 less per student than a traditional ISD. And for Uplift, uh, that was about $20 million less in state funding this past year than if we were funded like Dallas Independent School District, the largest um, ISD in our community. So that means we don't have some of the supplemental staff positions that we need, and it also means that for brand new teachers, we cannot afford uh, to pay them market rate salary. So those are two of the big challenges that we're tackling. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Yasmin. Uh, we definitely face the same challenges that Yasmin is articulating. Um, to, to build off of the first challenge a little bit more, I've been in education reform for about 17 years now, and I've seen that our, our goal is, has been a moving target. Early on in this work, you know, we, we had really low-level state tests that were really easy to pass. They weren't easy, but they, they weren't as rigorous as they are now, and, and so our goal was like, let's get our kids to pass that test, and we were doing that at really great rates, um, and then um, Common Core came along, and it's increased the rigor. We saw a lot of um, charter school networks, really high-performing charter school networks that were really caught off guard by the rigor. We haven't yet felt this in Texas. I'm not even allowed to say Common Core in Texas. Um, but just thinking nationally about our, our movement, um, the, the rigor of the Common Core standards has really thrown a lot of charter management organizations for a loop in terms of thinking their children were ready when they really weren't ready. And then we have this, this goal. Originally, we talked a lot about getting children to college. And then that became not as difficult. We, were, we have lots of charter management organizations that are getting 100% of students to college. But then the, then the goal became this through college piece, and we're really struggling with that. When you look beyond that, it's, our goal isn't even really just through college, because then there's the 21st century workplace. And, and beyond that, we want our, our, our children to not only be prepared for the 21st century workplace, but we want them to transform the 21st century as leaders in our community. And, and when you think about what's happening right now, I mean, just this week, what's the, the events in Tulsa and, and around the world um, are just highlighting again and again and again how much work we need to do to undo racism in our country. And so when you think about what it takes to prepare children for that, that's a huge challenge. It's way bigger and way more difficult than just getting children to college or getting children through college. And so I think that it's, it's really, we reflect a lot on what is it gonna take? What does school need to look like to prepare children for a future that we can only begin to imagine? And this, this challenge is even greater for us now where we are in the year 2016 because the, the workplace is changing more rapidly than it ever has before. And the technology that's coming online and the, the types of artificial intelligence that's coming in to play is going to wipe out mass amounts of jobs. And so our challenge is gonna become greater and greater. Um, and so that's a lot, one of the things we think a lot about at Montessori for All is how do you structure school to prepare children for a future that is so unknown? And fair funding. <laughs> it's a big problem. I wish I, I wish I had something different to talk about, but 
basically you'll, you're going to hear the same thing over and over from charter schools when they talk about what are the challenges. Two things. One, being able to grow with quality and excellence. And, and two, related to that is facilities. So first, just growth with excellence. Over the last decade, we've grown at a clip of about 20% a year. Mm -hmm. And if you think about a, a traditional business or a traditional organization growing at that rate, mm -hmm. it's incredibly challenging to keep a bar of excellence uh, and increase your excellence as you grow at that speed. Uh, so right now we have 3,000 alumni um, in college um, and or in college or have graduated from college. 70% of those are persisting, but only 48% have gone on to graduate. So when you compare that to their peers um, nationally, that number hovers right around 8% to 10% for students from uh, underserved communities. So on the one hand, we're proud that our students are graduating from college at roughly 50%, you know, four or five times the, uh, the rate of their peers nationally. It's still not good enough. Uh, as Yasmin pointed out, we want that to be much more like 80, 90%, so that we're not comparing them to their peers from underserved communities, but we're uh, comparing them uh, to their peers from upper middle class, uh, more affluent communities. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be the first one, is just maintaining excellence while you grow, because we have a plan uh, to continue to grow double in size uh, roughly over the next 10 years. Uh, and we need to do that because, and I'll talk about this later, there's right now a waiting list of 32,000 uh, children in Houston who want to go to a high quality charter school who don't have access right now. That means that for every one seat at YES, there are three children who want that one seat. Uh, so we, have to, we feel a moral obligation to grow to meet that demand. And then the second one I would say, uh, highlighting again what um, Sarah and Yasmin have said, is uh, the facilities problem that we face uh, all across Texas, but uh, I'll talk specifically about Houston. Next year we want to open two schools, and that will cost us $24 million that we have to raise privately or take on debt uh, in order to finance that. And when you compare that to you know, more traditional districts, it's actually really, really cheap, the way that we build buildings and the way that we finance our buildings. When you think about one school that serves almost 1,000 students being built for $12 million, I would encourage you to compare that uh, to other buildings that you might see built mm -hmm. uh, more traditionally. So we attempt to build our buildings in you know, a very cost-effective way, but it's still a massive organizational challenge to raise that much money year over year in order to grow. If I could channel Mike Feinberg for a moment, because we've discussed this, uh, and Richard Barth, the CEO of, of KIPP. In 2011, KIPP came up with a really pioneering study on college persistence, and, and they looked at their own network and found that 31% of their college graduates persisted through college through six years, and, and that was really not what they wanted to see. That was three times the national average for those low-income minority kids, mm -hmm. but it was far below the 75% that they, they wanted. They already, at that 2011, they already knew that things weren't turning out the way that they hoped. And so now, just to shift into the best practices of like what, what KIPP, some things that KIPP has done to, to, do, to deal with this, um, one, one thing, they decided that they had to go vertical. Um, they were mostly middle schools, and then they started adding elementaries, and now they're adding high schools. And what they've discovered is that a child who, who graduates from a KIPP high school uh, increases that, the, the chances of persisting in six years by 20 percentage points. So you'll see a lot of high, KIPP high schools being proposed or, or going up. Uh, they're doing this college match program um, so that they've, they've discovered that, let's say, even within the, the Texas higher ed system, uh, state universities that look alike have very, very different outcomes as far as um, the persistence rates of low-income minority kids. And so they're, they're, they're not necessarily trying to find, you know, change the colleges. They're saying, okay, you need to go here and here and not there. And so their college match program, uh, three years ago, it was uh, one out of 10 KIPP uh, seniors who were choosing you know, the college that was best for them, and now they're down to one out of four. And the last one, final thing they're doing, and again, falls into this best practices basket here, um, is they're, they're working with partner colleges. Um, and they've got about 80 now um, across the spectrum of selectivity where they've sat down and said, okay, here's what we need from you, and they've made real changes. I mean, at Franklin and Marshall, the changes have been really dramatic um, as far as 
uh, how they uh, watch the kids, how they partner them with mentors, how they changed financing. Um, and so this is pretty revolutionary. And But this is what they've learned. So maybe now throw it back to start with Yasmin. What have you learned along the way and changed to sure. increase persistence? Great. Um, so uh, we definitely are being much more directive with our seniors as well in terms of best fit college match. We really had focused previously, Sarah spoke about this evolution. First we were, um, had to convince parents why their children should go to college and particularly why it was okay for them to go to out of state. Then we had to make sure families, particularly those that were um, Spanish-speaking only, understood these complicated financial aid packages that their children were receiving. And now we are literally showing them the college graduation rate data for children that look like their children as they are applying and getting accepted into schools to make sure they have that transparency and can be advocates as we're making best fit decisions. So they can financially afford to go to that school and they also know that that school has a track record of being able to support them. We also did something for the first time last year in May and Mark and some of his team members were able to join us. We hosted what we called the College Race Symposium. And one of the things that, candidly, we had not been talking about with our kids uh, was what might inclusion and equity issues look like for them when they go to a college campus where they make up less than 5% of the student population. And it was this really neat all-day convening of institutions of higher ed, largely from Texas, but from around the country, many of our partner college organizations. We had some traditional public school districts, some high-performing charter peers from the state who were there. And we had real open conversations about what is the state of inclusion and equity on our college campuses, and what can we be doing inside our K-12 organizations to better prepare students for that. The last thing um, that we are shifting and pivoting is we have historically had alumni counselors on our high school campuses that support our students while they're away at college. Uh, and we are going to try something new this year where we take a few of those folks and we go to some of the local universities where we have a high population of Uplift students and actually physically place them at that university. So that way they can work in even deeper partnership than our MOU relationships um, in terms of helping not only those students when they first arrive, but students who are all the way through to college completion at um, that specific university. And we're hoping that that literally hands-on support of navigating the university on a couple of campuses uh, will dramatically improve uh, those college completion rates at those specific universities. Um, it's, I feel a little like a fish out of water, actually a lot <laughs> like a fish out of water up here, being such a new organization among people who've been doing this work for so long and are serving so many students. Um, I'll just talk a little bit about our theories um, based on our involvement in this work and, and how we are pioneering some new ideas. Um, one is the idea that we are an intentionally diverse by design school. We are creating schools that are racially, culturally, and socioeconomically integrated. And this is different from a lot of the high-performing charter schools that are um, serving primarily low-income children for, as part of their mission and vision. Um, and myself, coming from that environment, that is the, those children are so close to my heart. And that's ultimately, um, it's, it's hard when you work in an intentionally diverse school to give up spots to children who you know would be okay even without those spots. Um, but it comes from this organizational belief that children deserve to be in learning environments um, that are diverse and that all children learn better in environments that are, are racially, culturally, and socioeconomically diverse and that that will help. That's part of the college persistence problem is if, if you're just um, segregated within low-income schools, um, children racially and ethically that look like you, you go to college and all of a sudden you're like, wait, I don't belong here. I don't, I don't see any people who look like me. I don't, I, I, you, you have this fish out of water experience. And so we're trying to take that and, and address that by creating intentionally diverse by design schools. So that's number one, um, and, and we think that will help overall with undoing racism in our country. Um, our school's in Austin. Austin is an incredibly segregated city and an incredibly segregated school system, um, and we have an, an amazingly rich, um, diverse community that we're really um, 
excited to be part of. Uh, the second thing is this, this idea of what it takes to be able to persist through college. There was an article that came out in a magazine called One Day um, where there was a first-generation college student. It, it, it called him the classic success story. He was a first-generation college student, went to college, and then he dropped out. And there is this quote from the student where he says, you know, at my high-performing charter school, failure was not an option. They were always there. They always held my hand. They always made sure I didn't fail. And then I went to college, and I didn't know what to do because nobody was doing that for me anymore. And that really strikes me as something that we have to figure out because we have so many good intentions. We, we fight for children tooth and nail to help them be successful. But if we do it in a way that is too teacher-centered, we're undermining the development of the very thing that they need to be successful in college. And Montessori has this, uh, is this core tenet, is this idea that we have to help children cultivate freedom with responsibility, because that's what life is. It's freedom, and you, have you can either handle it with responsibility or not, and how you choose to handle it is going to determine your life outcomes. And so in my past teaching experience, our model was very much structure, 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 and then toward the very end of their time with us, we would try to release the reins and try to give them more freedom. Um, but Montessori believes that that's not enough time to learn how to handle freedom with responsibility. And so th the model puts this core concept down all the way into the pre-K-3 classrooms, where we give three-year-olds immense amounts of freedom and choice so that we can then coach them about how to use that freedom with responsibility over a very long period of time so that by the time they get to college, they do have more independence and they have more self-direction. They have more problem-solving skills um, because they've, they've been in an environment where they practice that day in and day out for their entire school career. So those are kind of the two things that are at the forefront of our mind as we engage in, in this, this journey. Before I talk uh, briefly about our best practices, I think it's important to consider, you know, Sarah starts by saying, I feel like a fish out of water because her school is relatively small and our school systems are relatively large. But I feel like we have a lot to learn uh, from the innovative approach that uh, she's able to take at a smaller school that then will scale. Uh, so I know that Thanks, we personally <laughs> have a lot of innovation that we have to figure out how to do when you have run a system of mm -hmm. 11, 12,000 students, 16,000 students, innovation can feel very challenging. It can feel like you have to figure out ways to do R&D off to the side. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a lot to learn from smaller systems. Um, I'd say in terms of our best practices, three quick parts. Elementary school is something that we are doing a feasibility study mm -hmm. on this year. We are one of four school systems, charter school systems in the entire country that try and do 612 without also doing elementary school. And what we're finding is, looking at a decade's worth of data, our kids are actually coming to us further behind now than they were a decade ago. So the challenge of getting kids ready in a seven-year period mm -hmm. is actually getting more and more challenging over the mm -hmm. years. So we're looking at elementary school. Mm -hmm. uh, sext, uh, next, mm -hmm. uh, sixth grade, uh, we start with a seminar program uh, that goes from uh, 6th through 12th grade, but really focuses in high school, ninth through 12th grade. Uh, and that seminar program is specifically designed to not just focus on academic readiness, but on uh, cultural readiness and social-emotional readiness. I have this firm belief that if we're just preparing kids academically, by the time they get to college, uh, they will not be best suited uh, to persist uh, because we've left out this whole part of college persistence, which is being ready socially and emotionally and culturally. Mm -hmm. And so we work that into our seminar program that really is focused uh, in, in high school. And then finally, we have uh, partnerships called our impact schools. We have 27 impact schools across the country where basically we have a partnership worked out with them where if our students get into those colleges, they cover all demonstrated financial need. So it's a great place where we can send uh, students to school and not have to worry about can they actually meet that burden that we all know is very real of being able to pay off your uh, student loans and take on that enormous amount of debt because of that partnership that we have. Mm -hmm. One thing that I didn't hear uh, and was a little surprised by was no reference to uh, so-called personalized learning. So when I make my, my rounds of so-called next generation charters, uh, the charters that are trying to figure out how to get 
six-year persistence rates up into the 80, 90 percent. Most of them are shifting to intense personalized learning um, where the, it, you're not just being told do this, do this, do this. It, you've, you've got to start very much well, you know, in, in beginning of high school and be before high school to be self-motivated and to um, learn how to launch your, your own um, academic challenges and how to, how to meet them because these, these charter kids were getting to college and then all of a sudden nobody, as your story, uh, nobody was there to say do this, do that, and that's uh, why they were getting in so much trouble. Any, any observations on personalized learning? We definitely have uh, aspects of personalized learning in our schools uh, and we'll use it for enrichment or intervention, uh, but really our instructional philosophy is IB, International Baccalaureate for All. IB is considered one of the most rigorous instructional or curricular frameworks and it's a whole child. It's very deep on critical thinking skills, reading, writing, speaking, working in teams collaboratively, applying real world problems. And so technology is used by students for the purpose of research or developing presentations. But um, because of the holistic approach of it, it doesn't have students spending lots of hours in front of a computer screen. And that's just our instructional philosophy. I, Montessori is a very, is 100% personalized, 100% competency-based model. Um, I, and I'm excited about the, the push for more personalization in the ed reform movement. I think we have to be really critical observers because at its core, personalized learning can still be fundamentally teacher-directed and teacher-centered, and so it can undermine the things that you're hoping for it to cultivate. So, for example, you might walk into a room where it's 100 kindergartners and first graders all doing something different with their iPads, but if that iPad has their schedule that's telling them, now it's a station rotation, and now you go to this place and you do this, and now you go here and check it off, you're still not developing what you're trying to develop. Um, I, I also think a lot about computer programs, because this is the, the next big thing, is to sit children in front of computers to learn from the computers, because the computers can differentiate instruction in ways that it's very difficult for the teachers to do. But if that computer is saying to you, ding, ding, you got eight out of 10 right, you are ready for the next level, then we are undermining the development of the metacognition skills, the metacognitive skills that our students need to reflect on their own learning and to reflect on when do they need more practice, when, are they, when have they really mastered something, when do they need to ask for help? Because when you go to college, that's what it is. It's sitting in a class saying, oh man, I don't understand what's going on, I better go to office hours, or I better go talk to my TA. And so we've got to make sure that whatever we're putting in place, that it's actually developing how to handle freedom with responsibility, how to build self-awareness, and there are lots of personalized models that are failing to do that as well. So this is an area that we are struggling with in real time. Uh, we have a number of pilots, uh, blended learning pilots across, which by the way is a, is a totally loaded term, but uh, basically a mix of technology uh, and uh, teacher uh, led or student-directed instruction, and that the challenge we're finding is that a lot of our students are actually learning how to basically figure out how to play the game, mm -hmm. how to do well on the blended learning, like personalized mm -hmm. learning, but then they go and take a standardized test or they go and take a you know, rigorous end-of-course test, and they're not performing as well as the program says they should be performing. And we think there's this gaming, uh, gaming bias that basically kids can learn how to basically play the game of blended learning. And so we're having to tease out mm -hmm. what, which blended learning, which personalized learning plans are actually doing more harm than good because kids are learning the system as opposed to actually learning the content and learning period. Can I build on um, Sarah's point for just a second at the high school level for us? Um, uh, in terms of this freedom and responsibility. So one of our high schools right now is piloting homework being optional and literally having students determine for a given subject, you know what, I feel super confident in French class right now. And so I don't need to do that homework, but in math, I need the extra practice. It's that notion of preparing them for the freedom they'll see in college. So again, I just wanna reemphasize this point Personalized learning, I think, oftentimes is connected to technology, but it can be this aspect of freedom that Sarah described. 
one of the most promising things that I see in going on in education now uh, are partnerships between high-performing charters and traditional school districts. Now, in a lot of places in the country, there are no partnerships and nothing but animosity and full-scale warfare. Um, and I've visited a few lately, but they are exceptions to that. Denver, for example, has made a lot of progress by essentially going out, seeking out the high-performing charters like DSST within, within Denver and folding them into their own school district and bringing them into their buildings. And so parents have a choice about whether to send to a charter or, or to an innovation school or a traditional school. And I think that the, I think this is a really promising future for the, the top charter networks, um, and, and including Yes Prep and, and Uplift. And, we've, and you folks are involved in some of these. So I'd like to hear you talk about, maybe start with Mark, uh, because uh, KIPP and Yes Prep are, are several years now into an experiment in Spring Branch uh, Schools, uh, which is a school district in, in Houston. And I'll let him describe what, how, how he works with KIPP and, and what, what they've learned from this compact. Great. Before I answer the specific question, I, I need to start with the philosophy here. I think you need to know that my philosophy about uh, school in general is that I am actually delivery agnostic, which is weird to say as the CEO of a charter school, mm -hmm. but I don't have any fundamental belief in charter schools being the only way that kids can learn or private right. schools or traditional public schools. I believe in, in, in choice for uh, families. Mm -hmm. uh, I. I happen to believe that charter schools are one of the, the best ways to do that because of my experience, but we work closely with two traditional districts uh, in Houston, Aldine ISD and Spring Branch ISD. I'll talk specifically about Spring Branch first. Uh, so Spring Branch, a few years ago said, we want to learn from best-in-class charters. Uh, so they, they actually visited they visited Yes Prep and they visited KIPP in Houston, which was a mind-boggling experience to host a superintendent from a traditional district on a charter campus. Uh, it's not something that happens often. Uh, so we gave a tour. Uh, Duncan Klusman, who was the superintendent at the time, loved what he saw and said, I want to bring both of your school systems into my school system. And so we set up what's called the Sky Partnership, Spring Branch, KIPP, Yes, uh, and how it works, and, and I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, so stay with me. Basically, two middle schools, one run by KIPP in a Spring Branch school and another run by YES in a Spring Branch school. Those two schools feed one high school. And in that high school, you have KIPP students, YES Prep students, and Spring Branch students. And really what we're working to do is create a high school where you wouldn't be able to walk in and go, ah, that's a KIPP student, that's a Spring Branch student, that's a YES student, but that they are really in an ecosystem uh, where every, everyone is learning better for having been a part of this partnership. And so at those schools, we have shared, uh, shared goals. So it's not good enough if YES prep scores are going up and the school, uh, traditional school district school uh, scores are not going up, uh, so we also, um, I think it's important to clarify, our scores, our results, are actually the district's results. So we don't have any pride of ownership here. If it's good for kids, it's great for us. And so the incentive for the school district is that they uh, get to use our results into their system. And the incentive for us is that, as I mentioned earlier, that facility challenge uh, goes away because we are inside of a building that has already been, uh, already been built. Uh, and then, you know, final thing I would add about this is a quote that I heard once uh, from our friends at the Gates Foundation. I'm not probably supposed to mention that at a Walton uh, Foundation event, but the Gates Foundation, uh, Don Shalvey, uh, said, there is far more uh, common ground than battleground mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, districts and, and charters working together. So far more common ground than battleground. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I'm just going to ditto so much of what Mark said and, and really thank our colleagues at KIPP Houston and at Yes Prep for leading the way in Texas on district charter partnerships because they absolutely were the first trailblazers on that front and uh, Uplift and Grand Prairie ISD. It was so wonderful. We got a complete jump start uh, to be able to take their partnership agreement and to launch our joint working teams to figure out what our model would look like. 
pretty much everything uh, Mark said applies to the Uplift Grand Prairie ISD relationship, except for Dr. Hull asked that we start at primary school. So Uplift runs Uplift Lee, which is inside Lee Elementary. It was a school that Dr. Hull was hoping would dramatically improve performance, exactly as Mark described. These, these are technically GPISD students. Our scores count for the district's accountability. Um, one thing I, I just think would be remiss for not really emphasizing is the courageousness of these superintendents mm -hmm. and their trustees uh, to take this on. Mm -hmm. uh, I know in a large district in my community, I've been told there is no way um, the trustees would feel politically safe uh, having a partnership school with Uplift. And the fact that Dr. Hull not only came and saw uh, Uplift School, but she came to an Uplift board meeting and asked the board to support her um, on inviting us in to run one of those schools, I think is huge because these partnerships are messy and uh, it's two different organizations trying to build trust and relationships with one another and learn different organizations coming together. It's like an arranged marriage um, mm -hmm. and you need leadership on both sides and trustees on both sides who are going to be with you when it's messy. And I feel like I can pick up the phone at any point, ask Dr. Hull or send me a text. And if, if we need to talk, we make time for one another. And so I just wanna really pay tribute to these superintendents and trustees who are willing to take on what others would perceive as a political risk. Mm -hmm. Can I talk about this sure. a little bit too? Sure. It's so exciting to hear we're finally getting to a place of movement where we're talking about partnership instead of competition. Because for so long, the, the prevailing model was like, let's just overtake a city and put so much pressure on the district that they see we, we're, they're hemorrhaging all their students. And so now they're going to be inspired to want to do what we do. Um, and I think that that's a really, it, it, does, it does have some impact, but it's also very limiting. Um, the, the district is serving, districts across the U.S. are serving, I don't know, 50 million children already. There's this amazing infrastructure. Um, and so it's exciting to, to hear when charters are thinking, you know, charters aren't going to take over the world. Like, let's get back into the district and support the district. Montessori for All thinks about this in several different ways. And one is the ways in which you're describing where it's you literally go and act as an operator for a district. But another way that we're thinking about it is, what does it take to really codify our model and create a blueprint that we, and then to create teacher training around this model and then to make that available to districts because there are so many districts who want to do better, they just need more support and more ideas because of the bureaucracy. It can be hard to in innovate and can be hard to incubate change. Um, so we're really focusing now on codifying our model and, and working to create a teacher training center so we can partner with districts. And, and the, the districts have been really open and receptive um, to the idea of public Montessori, both in Austin and in San Antonio. So it's an exciting time. Yeah. You sure? I'm sure. I have a follow-up question for you. So. Okay. So <laughs> I, have to, I have to follow up on this because this is exactly what's happening in our Aldine partnership. I talked mm -hmm. about our Spring Branch partnership, but I also want to talk about our Aldine partnership. So the Aldine partnership started when we bought a building on the edge of Aldine, mm -hmm. and within two weeks of buying that building, the superintendent, Wanda Bamberg, called me and was like, we want to talk about a partnership. And so we <laughs> created a partnership where we could open our building and it wouldn't pull anyone out of Aldine. And th these two schools are now half a mile apart, uh, one in Aldine, one not in Aldine. Uh, but we've been able to now build this partnership into Aldine. In Aldine, we only serve we, when, when it's all built out, we'll only serve about 1,000 of their 70,000 kids. Yet, what the non-negotiable for Dr. Bamberg was, was we want access to your college counseling program. So when you think about like a traditional district superintendent, this is not the first thing you would think would be on the list of non-negotiables. We want access to your college counseling program so that we can spread it out to all of our high schools. Mm -hmm. And when we think about that, the impact from a brick and mortar standpoint of Yes Prep is relatively small. It's 1 70th of the entire impact in Aldine. But when you think about the opportunity for kids who have no other touch point to Yes other than this college counseling program that's now brought into their school, we really see there's this like multiplicative effect mm -hmm. of being able to be in partnership with districts. You can, 
you can influence far more children's uh, futures than you could just focused on the kids that you serve directly. Okay, can I build for a second? Because <laughs> I think, so um, uh, for those who aren't familiar with how traditional ISD structure counseling programs, um, it's important to understand and why this is such a big deal because Dr. Hull actually asked for the same exact thing with Uplift and Grand Prairie High School. So in most traditional ISDs, they have a generalist counselor. The counselor who deals with you if you're suicidal is the same person who's college advising, is the same person who's helping you with your transcript. At Uplift, and I'm assuming at Yes Prep is similar in our high-performing peers, we have specialists, pure college advisors. That's what they've been trained on. Pure social counselors, pure academic counselors. And so this notion of not only do we are we able to broaden and spread out road to college counseling at all of these districts, Dr. Hull is actually thinking about rebuilding her entire counseling infrastructure based on what she's seen in our organization. So I agree that facilities is only one aspect. There are so many other ways that we can have a much broader impact. And sharing or, or exporting college counseling is is, is pretty unique and interesting because this is something that these top charters have really gotten down, and it's a valuable commodity. And if Mike Feinberg were here, he would point to what KIPP is doing in, in rural Arkansas, where essentially they, they reach an agreement with two high schools in rural Lee County where their people are doing the college counseling in these traditional uh, high schools, and they've already had a huge impact on the percent of kids who are going on to college mm -hmm. from these rural high schools. So this is something that, you know, it doesn't have to be an official compact. It could be just these high schools says, hey, you guys are doing something right. We want to know about it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what Spring Branch wanted from both Yes Prep and KIPP as well. They wanted to put that college counseling thing into effect. Now, I think this, this compact thing is so important. I'm going to follow up with, with one, one more thing here. I'm kind of curious, I mean, it's an arranged marriage, right? You know, and there's some rocky points. So what's gone well in Spring Branch and what has been rocky? So I would say that the most important thing in these uh, partnerships is to build a cultural connection first and around the belief in the potential of children. Mm. Uh, and I have zero doubt that everyone around the table in Spring Branch has the same fundamental belief about the possibility of children. And that... I think framed our conversations from the very beginning. That's what went well, it's like this cultural belief. What, what gets hard is when you have questions like, well, is the teacher who's teaching Spring Branch kids and Yes Prep kids in a joint classroom, are they held to Yes Prep HR standards? Are they held to Spring Branch HR standards? Are the bus routes, we need our kids there at 7.30, but the Spring Branch kids don't need to be there till 8.15. How do we run bus routes where we can get our kids there in time? Um, the schedules. We have a very specific schedule that we run uh, where we have double-blocked math and reading classes. That's not the same schedule that Spring Branch runs. So figuring out how to bring two very different schedules together. Uh, and, and then as hard as it's been to have two different student cultures in the building, you can also imagine two very different staff cultures in the building. Do you have one staff lounge? Do you have two staff lounges? I mean, it gets into the weeds very, very quickly. Uh, and so, so you're absolutely right, it's, it's an arranged marriage. But if you think about it like that, we think about it from the beginning with this marriage is till, you know, till death do us part, yep. we are going to yep. stay committed through hard times. We've taken a vow. Yep, we have taken a vow. <laughs> Do you have any rocky points yet? Or are you I too mean, soon in? Oh, this? no. We absolutely have rocky points. I mean, a perfect example was um, our school year starts earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, the AC, and we're in Texas, the AC units are controlled centrally. <laughs> so we literally had to have Dr. Hull That's approve right. an exception so AC could be turned on our first <laughs> two weeks of school in Uplift Lee. And so... Um, uh, so yes, there are those details, and they do cause pain points of frustration, so you do have to have that courage um, uh, to work through it. I mean, the other challenge, and I think you guys experience this too, is you're, ask, you're also asking school leaders to go through an arranged marriage with their peer uh, on the other side, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't, and we started off our partnership with Grand Prairie believing that the principal on their side was going to be the principal, and literally over the summer, they had to make a change, which we understood and supported. Um, and then they've made a change going into year two. And so it's hard um, when you're trying to build this deep collaboration. 
and the leaders um, are changing. But again, we took a vow, and all of us are committed to the success of this, regardless of the hiccups we see along the way. Now, I want to make sure there's time for Q&A, so I'll make this my last, um, last question. I, I want to get back into best practices of finding teachers <coughs> and developing teachers, because, of course, there's a national teacher shortage, maybe. And, um, but there's definitely a challenge for these high-performing charters, which for years, my observation is, have relied on Teach for America um, to give them tier one graduates who are just motivated like hell and have never you know, failed at anything in their lives, and they're not going to fail at this. Um, and now you've got a dwindling supply of TFAers. Um, what do you do? So this past year, we had to hire 300 new teachers and only 25 of them were Teach for America teachers. So I do think it's a little bit of a, a myth from t days gone by where we are essentially fully sourced by Teach for America. So mm -hmm. those other 275 new teachers, uh, we recruited from across the country. We, we recruit, um, we, we have a very like strong recruitment program, actually have campus coordinators at college campuses that recruit for us. I say all that saying that we are in the process of shifting away from a strategy where we focus on recruiting new teachers. Uh, this is something that you have to do when you're in high growth, quick growth mode, but I, don't, I actually don't think it's long -term, it is a long-term sustainable strategy to continue to rely on first-year teachers. So we have an internal campaign called Commit to Five, uh, which is a persistence goal to ensure that teachers who start with us teach for at least five years. We see measurable gains in student achievement mm -hmm. after three years. Uh, so keeping our teachers through that three, four, five-year mark is incredibly important to us. And then we also have a, a program that we call New to Blue. Uh, blue is the, is the color of yes, and New to Blue is basically a program that honors people's uh, experience outside of yes. So we, we are working hard to pull in and this is where the you know, competition can get tough with the districts, but pull in teachers who have experience. Because even if your experience is in a traditional ISD, uh, we believe that that experience is valuable uh, and can help us continue to learn, uh, uh, learn and grow. So. Just real quickly, so we'll have time for Q&A. Any other observations? And I mean, I do um, uh, agree with Mark that I think it's this myth um, uh, that all of our uh, teachers do come from Teach for America. We're also looking at deepening our partnerships with some of our local universities and having very specific um, uplift pipelines that are coming into uh, our schools as well. But it is definitely something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. How are we going to staff up these schools with high-quality teachers? Mm -hmm. um, oh, great. <laughs> In theory, I'm supposed to repeat your question, but I don't think I think everyone can hear. We'll see. So, so my question is about the teacher retention. Um, just so my biases are out there, I'm a public school teacher. Yep. I feel like a lot of the success of the the high performing, which public schools, I, we have a lot. I, I feel like there's a lot of room for us to learn from charters, but I feel like a lot of the success of high performing charter schools has to do with the fact that your teacher staffs are a lot of young people who are willing to work twelve plus our days, five, six days a week, and that's just not sustainable for more than the two or three years, and so you do have high turnover. And I feel like public schools would have the same results that you do if we would all be willing to work 12-hour days. I mean, I work plenty of 12-hour days, don't get me wrong, but that's just not sustainable for an entire career. And I feel like that's a lot of the problems with education all over. So what are you doing to, I mean, that's just, it's not sustainable, so what are you, I mean, I know, this I agree. is a problem for you, but yeah. I mean, this is a, I think this is a problem yeah. for everywhere because sure. the research shows that the more you teach, the longer you do it, the better you are. Absolutely. Can people back there here, okay? Okay. This is really dear to my heart. When I was working at KIPP Academy, uh, the children were arriving at 7.25 a.m. and they were leaving at 5 p.m. And that was not, it wasn't sustainable. And this was before I was married, before mm -hmm. I had children. And I was looking at that day saying, I can't do this. I cannot work 10 hours with children because teaching is before school and after school. And um, I feel like it's that structure evolved in response to the real urgency and the real need that we see in our, our, in our children and, and this 
immense um, commitment that we have to help them change their life trajectories. But I think over time, the, the networks are starting to realize that it's not a sustainable model. Even at KIPP, they've been asking a lot of questions. They've, they've been creating focus groups and, and whole internal teams focused on the sustainability question, and, and hours have been changing. So over the years, there's been a real evolution in response to the concerns that you're raising. Great, and if we could keep our answers short too, we might be able to get through the line, Great. so thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Saul, I'm a junior here at UT Austin. And uh, through my high school career, I unfortunately my first high school was like a really bad, low-performing uh, high school in Waco, Texas. And then uh, I got to transfer, I went to a magnet school that was really good and was an academy. But uh, then 2011 budget cuts, unfortunately, mm -hmm. they closed the school down. And uh, one of the things you guys mentioned in your, um, mentioned during the talk has been preparing uh, students for college on a cultural level. And then what I saw, that was a big difference in the different high schools I went to. So can you just talk a little bit more about those programs and what exactly you do? Sure. Um, so uh, specifically on the social emotional piece is making sure that our students have real independence while they're in those high school years so they can navigate their environment about talking about um, what does real kind of perseverance and grit look like. It also includes making sure that students have a positive sense of self-identity because we know how important that is. It's about giving them exposure to careers um, so they know they're going to college for a specific purpose. And it's having what we are finding the most challenging of all this, of preparing our teachers to navigate conversations around race, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so that way, it's not the first time they're encountering it in college, but they actually have a forum to have safe space conversations prior to going to school. Great. Thank you. My name is Daniel. I was actually a Teach for America Corps member where I taught fifth grade in Las Vegas, Nevada, but I love higher education, so I came back to UT where I'm now an academic advisor for the Student Success mm -hmm. Initiatives program here, and I work with a lot of first-generation, low-SES, Pell-eligible students. Mm -hmm. And going back to like the pipeline of K-12 and higher ed, I still see a lot of problems when it comes to them remembering going to class, remembering to do their homework, seeing office hours, going to tutoring, and you all were talking about like their own personal responsibility and freedom, yeah. uh, Sarah, at Montessori mm -hmm. for All. I want to know, how do you assess and measure that sort of attainment? Yeah. Or I know you do practices of this, but how do you know that they you know, assess this correctly so that they can be successful in college versus assuming that they do these practices, it's going to get by? This is one of the things I'm really worried about. I'm both excited about and worried about. I feel like we as a movement are starting to widen what we measure because you have to measure what you treasure and so we're starting to realize like social and emotional development like this matters and now we're starting to measure it and that is both good and very frightening yeah. um, hearing because uh, because when once you start measuring something children can become more focused on um, what they're doing uh, more focused on how they're doing versus what they're doing um, I, I think that um, there's one organization that's focusing on this, and you know, they're, when we get so data-driven, which I'm incredibly data-driven, but they're so data-driven, and, and they're like, we're gonna do these interventions where we have these teachers do these assessments, and then we're gonna see if a child chooses a more difficult homework. And, and it's like, when you start to narrow it, it's, it's gonna be more and more difficult. I think it's through a lot of observation. I think it's through restructuring what school even looks like, because if you just, concentrate these things to a class, then you're not giving a child a full experience. They need to be in an environment where they are making real choices and you're observing how are they doing when they're given choice? How do they do? And then how do I coach them? So I think, it's, I think you're raising a lot of really good questions and there are not great answers yet. Great, thank uh, you. Can I just add one quick thing on it is, um, uh, it's a little bit, um, a slightly different view on the data piece. So we're partnering with Harvard and Panorama on a student assessment um, uh, uh, SEL survey that they do assessing their own sense of school belonging, perseverance, ability to handle a tough challenge. And I will say the benefit of that is pushing traditional hardcore charter school principles of that compliance does not mean a culture of school belonging. So I do think that you have to be very cautious about it, but data can be powerful in shifting school cultures. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Hi, my name is Adrienne Epstein. I actually went to charter schools, but I'm from Los Angeles, so I had a different experience completely. 
Um, my, my question for you guys is that as technology advances and we move towards a global economy, global education, outreach and such, uh, how do you feel about the integration of a bilingual education starting from a younger age? So we have uh, a number of our schools that are looking at AP languages outside of Spanish. So one of our uh, schools just brought on AP Chinese. Yeah. Uh, so I feel very strongly that we should do it. Uh, I'm not convinced yet that AP is the way that we should be measuring the success of these bilingual programs, but mm. I'm convinced that that uh, our students, though the, many of them are already technically bilingual, uh, we need to think about bilingual much more holistically yes. than just can you pass a, a foreign language AP test. Uh, so that's what we're figuring out in real time right now, is what does it truly mean to be bilingual or trilingual? Great, thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm Carl Jones. I live way out west Austin. I'm a retired investment advisor for a major Wall Street firm. And as you can imagine, my question is going to be on school financing. Mm -hmm. um, are you familiar with, first of all, Ray Perryman, the famed economist out of uh, Waco, who does a lot of studies about uh, our society, our, our economy, <laughs> education. He's very well known in the in the investment community, the business community. But he did a study in June about public education, and he said that for every $1 spent, we get $50 back from these students that go through the public education school satisfactorily, through volunteerism, mm -hmm. giving back in the economy, uh, taxes, and contributions to our society, and so forth. Having said that, <clears throat> Back in 2011, the Texas legislature cut $5.4 billion from the public school budgets, as you well know. Yes. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so your question is? And my question is, thank you, is how in the world do you work through that with a, I don't want to be too political here, but a Republican-controlled legislature? Mm -hmm. And do you have resources within your companies and within your uh, school district's uh, advocates around the state that can work through that and to get this funding restored mm -hmm. uh, satisfactorily sure. so that you can go ahead and make improvements in innovation mm -hmm. and get more kids involved in the charter schools as well as the districts, the traditional districts, mm -hmm. and looking at the whole scope of finance because you can't take those kinds of cuts, as you well know, and, uh, and expand your resources mm -hmm. and uh, take care of more kids. So my question involves what strategies and observations and contributions you have in that, uh, in that area of financing. So this was year two of me being CEO of Uplift, and we took those cuts. And um, very briefly, the way we handled it is I um, told publicly our staff, because every single day on the news they were seeing layoffs in all the traditional public ISDs and people cutting PE and art classes. And I said, we're gonna keep all of our specialist classes. We're not gonna lay off a single teacher for budget reasons, um, but we're gonna all hold salaries flat. Every single member of this organization is gonna hold their salary flat. And um, we cut any non-essential spend, no external professional development, no new technology. And we were able to get through that now, over the years, we're actually back to the same funding levels of 2010, um, pre the cuts. Uh, and so we've, we've survived it. Uh, what you've seen districts and charter schools also do is we've had to increase class size, which is not optimal from a teacher, a student, or a parent perspective. Yes is the answer is we have advocates across the state from all different sectors who are passionately working on making sure that we not only maintain funding, but also increase funding. Great. Thanks. Hi, guys. You've got fantastic schools. My name is Michael Martyr. I'm an old guy at UT. I've got in front of me the college readiness data from the Texas Education Agency, mm -hmm. SAT, ACT measure disaggregated by poverty. There are six charters that are way better than the public schools that are comparable, but 60 that are way worse. In fact, overwhelmingly, the charter sector is way worse than the public sector on college readiness. How does that square with the narratives we were hearing? So I, I think it squares with my belief that charters aren't the answer. They're part of the answer. And so there are a lot of charter schools out there that are not doing right by children. Um, in fact, 
we have, uh, to be totally transparent, we have a school that just this past year was rated improvement required by the state. So we are struggling in real time uh, with one of our schools that needs to improve. Um, but what I, I am proud of is that the state uh, two years ago made some very, uh, took some very drastic measures to shut down uh, charter schools that weren't doing right mm -hmm. by kids. I think what's interesting is that those same drastic measures do not apply to districts, right? So a charter school can be shut down after three years of not uh, meeting standard in financial or academic, any combination of financial or academic uh, standard. Some traditional district schools have not done right by kids for decades and we don't see the same, I think, standard applied. My goal would be, when we advocate, for the same standard for all schools that aren't doing right by children uh, to have punitive measures uh, in order to make sure that those kids have access to a school that does right by them. Well, I think they're gonna cut our mics off pretty soon, so better make this the last question, but all these folks are gonna be out, uh, out here. You can ask them personally. Good morning, thank you all for being here today. I really do appreciate the discussions we've had. My name is Steven Santoy, and I'm a second year student here at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, as the younger brother of an educator within Uplift Academy, um, Uplift Education, I see firsthand what great I things are being done. You. <laughs> um, every day, um, I can, you know, I, she's a second grade teacher, and I love seeing the images that are being produced mm -hmm. through the teachers about being college ready. Um, but as a first-generation college student myself, I feel tremendous pressures of not only being the first in my family to graduate from an undergraduate program, but making those decisions within the next two years about going to either law school, graduate school. What kind of things are being implemented within your programs on not only the importance of being college ready, but the importance of deciding those, those life-changing decisions for either a graduate school program or a future career in such a um, short amount of time? Mm -hmm. So um, it's nice to see you and thank you for sharing. Um, this is what our board's wrestling with right now. As Mark talked about, they have 3,000 alums. We have a similar number that are in college or have exited college. And what is the appropriate role we can play with providing that next level advising and also candidly connecting our alumni to internships and careers and what is the scalable way we can do that because right now we're one-offing it as we have specific students who we encounter who we can pair up and provide support to and and so um, we don't have the answer yet but we are committed to trying to figure it out Fantastic. thank you thank you well at this point I want to thank the, the panelists I think it's been great and um,